This is Gluten-Free Beer Brian, and I'm going live with JP Beerly here in just a moment. Hey, there we are. Hey, here I am. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Hey, I got a shout out to Jamie because Amelia's on with the kids, and she just uh, messaged that Jamie says, hi, Daddy. So, hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. I'll join hi you to in you that too, one. Felix. All right. I'm going to start with... Oh, by our powers combined. Logger, yes. I am really looking forward to this one. Let's see, and I'm Have you seen my, pouring it into a glasses? traditional stein. Very excellent. I haven't, uh, and I, I don't get to see a live video of you. I just have like a still shot. <laughs> That's true. So this is a, gosh, what are these muffin top glasses? And it's got the, if you can see inside, it's got the nucleated bottoms. So I'm kind of messing around with those a little bit right now. I had a glass that was, had the nucleated bottom. And I loved it. But yeah. it broke. This is a pretty good weight to it. So kind of, kind of pour right down the middle a little bit to get yourself a little, a little more there. There you go. Excellent. Ooh, wonderful multi Thank you. First, we have to say prost. 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 Thank I have to say the lid things kind of can be a little awkward because it's like coming up right up by your face. But yep. it's nice Absolutely. if you have to walk around because it helps you splash less. Well, you know, the, you know the, uh, the joke, right? I can tell this joke because we're drinking a German beer, right? Uh, yep. Viennese, German beer, whatever. So uh, the joke is, and I actually learned this joke in German. Uh, the joke is... This guy goes to Oktoberfest, this American goes to Oktoberfest, and he waits in line in the Hofbrauhaus in the tent out there for like five hours to get his, his, his stein of his leader of, of Oktoberfest beer. And, uh, and he finally gets his leader, sits down, his Krugel of beer, uh, sits down at the tables and, and realizes he has to go to the bathroom. So he says, well, shoot, you know, I've only had like that much of my beer, or that much of my beer. I don't want to leave it here. So I'm just going to put this little note underneath it. In German, that's a settle. And mm-hmm. he says, I spit in this beer. And puts it underneath his, his, his glass, walks away, you know, takes him a long time at the bathroom, as you might expect. Comes back, right. sees his be- glass of beer from afar, just sitting there, but it looks a little bit fuller. He says, huh. I wonder what's going on. Maybe somebody came by and refilled my beer, right? And so he gets down, sits down to his beer. He goes and lifts up his glass, says, Prost, goes to take a drink, looks down at the note, and it says, I spit in this beer. And then underneath it says, me too, me too, me too, me too. Don't leave your beer unattended. Moral story. That's the story. I am really enjoying this beer, though. Thank you. Super, just super clean, nice malty. Not super light body, like, you know, like the, like a light lager. Mm-hmm. So it's got a little bit more body than a light lager. Nice carbonation. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, like a Vienna lager should be nice and balanced. Yep. You know, See that, that more towards the malt up. side. What's yep. that? See that geyser coming up there? I don't know if it, it's uh looking kind of nice in my glass. I love this. I love this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, even I don't have a nucleated glass, but I do have, you know, this nice little subtle cascade of bubbles coming up. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep things, this little rim going of foam. One of the things that I'm working on, and I've heard reports that this is, uh, I don't know, like 60% Vienna lager, Vienna millet, rather. Hmm. And I've heard that that can be a bit of a head killer. And I'm definitely okay. seeing that. So I'm definitely working on that. I've got some projects to kind of get, get that a little bit different. And that's, that's the only thing I'm still working on on this beer. Because otherwise, like, I am just, well, I think, I, I know I've told you, but I know probably nobody else knows. We brewed through 16 individual recipes in order to get to this one. Right. And it took me about a year to figure, to do that. And um, when we got it, we, we knew we had it, so. Yeah. It's, it's excellent. Thank you. I could, I could sit there and drink this. Just all day. That might be a bad idea for my liver, but it tastes great. <laughs> well, it's only 4.9% ABV. So it was a good one to start with. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got to tell you, Brian, I, I, I'm glad we started with the Vienna Lager because this is a really huge passion beer of mine. And if you haven't read it, I, I, I don't know if I've told you about this yet, but I just got this book about, well, Saturday, and a pretty, pretty quick read. It was only 100 and, oh, about 160 pages or so, plus recipes at the end. And, and definitive, definitive uh, book on Vienna Lager wow. by Andreas Krenmer, released mm -hmm. in 2020. And the thing that really uh, drew me to it, besides the fact that it was on Vienna Lager was that actually the, the place that I lived when I lived in Vienna is on this, on the map, on the front of this book. And I'm just, oh, uh, wow. And I actually, when I lived in Vienna, I lived right there. So <laughs> I really was drawn to this book. Really interesting read and dispels some of the, some of the stuff about Vienna lagers that has been true in the barley world for a long time. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know that we're kind of at the beginning of gluten-free industry stuff and, and doing right. some of these. Really fun to see like a recipe for a historic Vienna lager that has 100% Vienna malt. How's that for a grain bill? <laughs> so, so it's all Vienna. I'm guessing a single hop variety. This one? Yes. Uh, this is not all Vienna. I, I've okay. done 100%. I've done 100% Vienna. And I have a tasting partner that is a BJCP judge and is a wheat eater, as they say. It's a gluten, mm -hmm. gluten eater. I am not. I have celiac disease. And so I rely on taste memory. But he's still in the, the barley world. And, and he helped me to really dial in now that definitely I absolutely yeah now i realized when after i read the vienna lager book after i read everything that every single one of those 16 recipes that i brewed was a vienna lager i mean as far as as far as we can do because you know barley people will say all the time that unless it's brewed with barley it's not it's not true to style 
even right. if it tastes exactly the same, even if it tastes exactly yeah. right, it's still not right. <laughs> and so like take that away and just accept that it's, it's brewed with gluten-free ingredients and every single one of my 16 recipes was a Vienna lager, so. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and the can here, it says water, malted millet, malted rice, hops, and yeast, so. Yep. Yeah, and I'm using, uh, I'm very happy to tell you which hop I'm using because it's, it's kind of a point of pride. I'm using the Mount Hood hop in this. Ooh. Yeah, and Mount Hood is Hallertau middle fruit that was planted and cultivated in the Northwest. So Mount Hood's also my favorite mountain for snowboarding. So I really enjoy brewing Mount Hood, brewing with Mount Hood for my German hops. Michigan, or at least my soil, they don't produce as well. Yeah. Um, I'll get probably a third to a quarter off of the Mount Hood as I will off of my Centennial. Here's okay. a question for you. When, does, when do your hops actually, when can you actually harvest them? Because I've found is I grow nugget in my backyard and I've found that they're quite late. My homegrown hops tend to be quite late. I would say probably towards the end of August. Okay. I'm probably going to end up ripping out the Mount Hood unless it starts producing a lot better and just replace how, it with the Centennial. How long have your Mount Hood been planted? I think this is year three. Okay. Yeah, this will be my uh, third, third season with them. Yeah, generally three years is what. I mean, you might give it one more season and see if they take off. I know my nuggets took three years to really get, to really get established in, in my backyard. And my, I see, I usually see, I mean, nuggets a later harvest in general, but I usually see my nuggets ready like the third week of September or the fourth week of September, which has always been... A huge challenge for my fresh hop for the, the Groundbreaker Fresh Hop Festival because I've always used that as my fresh hop for that, for that festival and I'm always pushing the heck out of, out of actual production schedule. <laughs> and yeah. it actually just broke down last year because the hops were late and the beer like freaked out on me, the yeast freaked out on me and it didn't attenuate the way I wanted okay. it to, which was really strange because it was my standard recipe that I've been brewing for years, but it ended up taking three weeks in primary, in the fermenter, in the conical. Oh, wow. And I ended up kind of ignoring it for a while because I was just sort of over it and I missed, mm -hmm. I mean, I missed some, some deadlines for it and I had to do some other things. But when it came out, my, did I send you, I sent you some of my nugget hops, didn't I, from last year? I don't think so. I need to. So the way okay. they came off and the way they were tasting originally, they were a giant pineapple fruit bomb. And it was super cool. <laughs> that, so, that sounds good. I love yeah, pineapple. Despite, despite pineapple all hops. that, they came out like pineapple hops. It was fantastic. So That's awesome. Yeah, because I love like Brew One and El Dorado, especially together. It's one of my like go-to combinations. I did that mm -hmm. with habanero and jalapeno and serrano peppers mm -hmm. and just made, oh my God, that beer was so good. And mm -hmm. I actually accidentally froze it. And I was like, why, why does this beer keep getting like <laughs> spicier and like stronger flavored? And, yep. you know, I'm drinking it... two instead of four and... You yep. know, feeling yep. it, and then yep. I like pull a keg because it, 
you know, it's acting like it was empty. And it's like, this is still really heavy. I open it up and it's like full of ice. I'm like, oh. Yep. <laughs> ice Oops. right down the middle. Yep, ice right yep. down the middle. So I've got a story uh, about frozen beer. And James, actually, James Newmeister. So we opened up on St. Patrick's Day of 2016 was our mm -hmm. opening day. And, and we were down at the Eats and Treats Cafe that was in, in Philoma, which is a dedicated gluten-free cafe. And they were leasing me space to make the beer because they mm -hmm. wanted to help us get started. Uh, and that's how we started out five years ago. And I had a 30-inch glass fridge, a true brand, one of those. And that was where I did temperature control on my one-barrel fermenter. And then I had a 48-inch true back bar fridge with a stainless top on top and mm -hmm. two, doors, two doors down below. And I could put eight Sixtal kegs in it. And that's where I okay. did basically carbonation, bright tanks mm -hmm. carbonation. And, and also we had the serving fridge up front at the cafe. And initially I had, my, my first beers that I opened with were my wit and my Beyond Pale Ale. And I had, the, I had the Beyond Pale, actually that came out second, but I had the wit done like two weeks before we opened. And I had that carbonated and in the, the serving fridge. Well, about a week before uh, we opened, my, I got my 48 inch all cleaned and, and, and plumbed up with gas lines and everything. And I installed it in my brew area at the cafe. And, and my, my Beyond Pale Ale was finished. It came out of the fermenter and I put it in the, the kegs to, to carbonate and shoved them in the true fridge. And then I thought, you know, I really want to just put all my kegs in here so that there's nothing in the serving fridge so that I can, you know, ceremoniously bring my kegs up and put them in the fridge the night that we open and tap them and, and sell them. So that's right. what I did. Well, I learned a lesson with that back bar fridge and that is that the thermostat in it, the thermocouple is really sensitive. And mm -hmm. in the process of moving it from my oh, no. house where I had cleaned it to the cafe, which was about 50 miles, I broke it. Oh, and geez. so the night we opened, my beer was frozen. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, mostly frozen, right? Because like beer right. doesn't really freeze unless it's really low gravity. My wit was not frozen, but the, the Beyond Pale Ale was. And James came back a little early. James Neumeister came down for my opening. Thanks, James. And we opened up the keg and I was like, James, what do I do? And he's like, let's heat it up. Let's get some heat into it. So I had, I had an electric element and we just like took the electric element and jammed it down into the center of the, <laughs> of the ice and turned it on, which was only 110. So we weren't at risk of popping it or anything and tried to heat right. it up. And, and then the wit was, was frozen in the center. We, it was pretty, we got that pretty well defrosted, but the end of the night, I went and looked and there was a core of ice. And so, you know, I'll let you draw conclusions as far as the ABV that night, but <laughs> who knows? Was, uh, I will definitely say that I have never repeated that exact flavor 
for the wit ever since then. Yeah, it's, it's a way to uh, intensify those flavors. Yeah, I mean, like, I had everybody just totally hooked on my beer, right? <laughs> yeah. That Eisenbach I accidentally made, it had some of the best head retention I've seen. <laughs> yeah. And it was funny because, I mean, it was early on in my brewing, you know, experience. And I was like, oh, my God, I must be a genius. <laughs> no, I'm just an idiot. That's all. I just accidentally stumbled upon something. I actually floated a, a habanero on top of the foam for a, yeah. a photograph. So do you want to jump into talking about the sorghum malt that we've been playing with? Yeah, sure. I didn't bring any examples with me, but I've got them in the other room. But yeah, let's talk about the sorghum malt. Right. The sorghum malt is probably about, what, double on grain size? Double, triple? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a little bit, it's a little bit thicker. I would say it's, it's more circular. It's, it's more similar yeah. to like a, a kernel of buckwheat than it is like rice, but it's roughly, it's roughly the same size as buckwheat would be, but without the yeah. super annoying pyramidal-shaped hulls. <laughs> that makes you think of playing Dungeons and Dragons. You need those funny-shaped dice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I was We're brewing, not nerds. Um, I was brewing with buckwheat. I did a 50% buckwheat beer a couple weeks ago, buckwheat mm -hmm. IPA, and I was using the mash and boil for this 50% buckwheat beer because I calculated that I'd have enough space and everything, and, and everything worked great. The only problem I had all day is my mash and boil was the model without the pump. So I mm -hmm. added a recirculation pipe to the side because, you know, when I got it, I was like, I want an external pump in case, in case my pump breaks, I can just replace it. Right. A, actually, I got the pipe work from a grandfather. And so I have a grandfather recirculation pipe on the side. Well, everybody knows who has a grandfather. There's a uh, ball valve at the top of it with a valve in top of that that has a ball in it so if you take the recirculation uh fitting off the top the the beer the wort won't spray out the top at you it's got a, a check valve in there okay well i took the check valve ball out a long time ago because i kept getting i kept getting rice hulls stuck in there and then my mm -hmm. recirculation would go down and i couldn't do anything but this day that I brewed a 50% buckwheat beer in it, I kept getting this stupid buckwheat hulls stuck in the area at the top where that, where that uh, check valve is, just in the housing. And it was so, like, personally defeating. I was just like, come on, I, I can do this. I don't have a problem doing this. And these stupid hulls keep getting stuck right here. And I kept, like, having to unscrew it off the top and take it over and like blow it out and rinse it out in the sink. And it was, <laughs> I'm not too fond of it. Sounds like a... It was. And it was like, it actually it was, that brew day was way harder than like three days before when I did a 100% pale buckwheat beer. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was easy. But this, this day, because of the geometry of that uh, valve on top, I just, I couldn't win for losing. Right. So yeah, I think if you've brewed long enough, you've had those days where a brew that should be easier just goes like shit. And, or you try something like when we tried boiling the, the sorghum malt. It's like our yep. first steps were doing a cereal cook. And I think we both had 
just a horrible sparge. I know mine was horrendous. I was uh, with the anvil, and I run screens in there, and I had to, like, reach down, dig my arm down in the malt. It's boiling as hot, and, like, pull these screens out just to get it to drain out. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you were using your heat-proof gloves, right? You have a pair of those, right? <laughs> what? I what do. are gloves? <laughs> oh, they're really great. <laughs> I have a, I, I bought, recently bought myself a pair of chemical-proof, heat-proof gloves, and I'll say that they nice. do make some things a little easier when I remember to put them on. <laughs> right? When you remember. Oh, I burned my hand. Wait, I should put gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I actually probably could probably go on to another beer. So what's the next one you're going for? I am going to drink Darkness Takes Flight. Yes. Love to see what you think of this. Who is this from? Uh, Brutal underscore (laughs) mash. Brutal mash. Brutal mash gluten-free brewing. This is yours. You sent this to me as a uh, sample. Yes. And, I have and that's a recipe this. that you and I came up with, or I think it was mostly you. I, I don't know. I think it was a group effort. I had to pull out my, my uh, bottle opener because it's actually been a while since I've used a bottle opener because we went to cans about a year ago. So, yeah. So, okay. So this is Darkness Takes Flight, which I think also, this is a kit, right? Can't you buy this as a um, kit on your website? No, not yet. No. But you uh, published this recipe, so, right? Yes. Yeah. That one's published, I believe, on Beersmith under okay. Gluten-Free Beer Brian. Follow you for more recipes, right? Follow me for recipes, dude. <laughs> what are you drinking next? It's the 100% caramel 10 millet yeah. beer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me get this close to the microphone here. Oh, nice crack. Beautiful color. It's a homebrew beer, so I gotta watch the end here. Not bad. That is, there is an ever so slight bit of, of stuff at the bottom, but really like totally acceptable. Uh, yeah, like actually really, 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 really good. And let's see, nice little ring. Okay. Been a while since I've done a <laughs> clean tasting of the beer. <laughs> Most of the time, it's like one ounce for, you know, research purposes. And then you dump dump the rest. Nice caramel note up front. Not super aromatic. Might need to warm up a bit in order to be more aromatic. Oh, that's got like two flavors that hit you right up front and then back off significantly. So there's a, a little bit of a caramel that's flavor two. And then flavor one is, is like really intense, like, like raspberry gummy bears. Made, no, okay. no, no, green, strawberry, strawberry gummy bears. Did you know that green Ooh. gummy bears are actually strawberry flavored? What? Yeah. Why green? Green leaves? <laughs> I, I don't eat them anymore don't know. because yeah. they say now that they may contain wheat starch. So I don't eat yeah. those ones. I like this beer, man. This is good. Thank you. Very approachable, very crushable, as Bob would say. I, I actually think that lagers are really good when they don't get in the way of other things and when they're essentially mm-hmm. in, when they're inoffensive. 
like you want to have a logger and something, not just right. just that one thing. So yeah, what are you? You're you're drinking the C10. How's that one? Yeah, it's very sweet. This is one where it's the C10 millet from Skagit Valley. I went into the brew day not knowing the PPG, mm-hmm. and so you and I kind of guesstimated. And we guesstimated way low. Yeah, we so were I ended really up wrong. with <laughs> yeah, way wrong. And so it I ended happens. up at my target was like ten forty, ten forty five. Ended up at like ten sixty or ten sixty five. That's just more so alcohol, a right? Lot more alcohol than I you know planned on. Um, it's a bargain, right? It's a bargain. I mean, duh. <laughs> it could use a little more hops or you know just yeah. less less malt. I would pr- next time I would just back off on the malt, you know, to hit the target and probably up the the hops a little. Now you gave me a really nice mash technique for this that you've used. Do you want to describe that? Yeah, you're talking about the only one that I use glucoamylase on. Is that the yes. one? Yeah. So I don't use glucoamylase here in the brewery, with the exception of when I know that I'm going to use a malt that I expect to be, to end really high. So a high, a low attenuation, high final gravity. So like if right. I'm expecting something to end at 10, 15 or higher, what I want to do with that is I want to, if I want a more standard, you know, 10, 12 to 10, 15, instead of right. like 10, 20 or 10, 30, what I will do is I'll use a little bit of glucoamylase in the most controlled way possible. So I don't do this on my large system. It works well on my, on my small system. It works well on anything that you can lift and dump uh, the portion of beer that right. you're going to do this with. So, so homebrew scale, it works wonderfully. Homebrew scale, pilot scale, you know, anything up to about five, six, seven, eight gallons of running, something like that. So what I do right. is I take... I, I take the first third of the runnings that I collect from, from the lauder. You know, when I come out of the mash tun and go into the boil kettle, I collect the first right. third of the runnings, of the volume of the runnings, and I set them aside in a, in a bucket. And then I collect the other two-thirds of the runnings in the boil kettle, and I start the ramp to boil with that two-thirds of the runnings. When I know that I'm 30 minutes away from boil in the main boil kettle, I throw one milliliter per pound of the original grain bill of glucoamylase, you know, whether it be Saxime Pro or, or whatever it is. Zyme. Atenuzyme, yeah, any of those. I throw that into that first third of runnings that I collected and let it, let it do its thing for exactly 30 minutes. And then at the end of 30 minutes, I set a timer at the end of 30 minutes when the two thirds of the the runnings are at boil, I take that first third and I dump into the boil kettle and it takes it through the glucoamylases denaturing immediately. And that way I can control for exposure time essentially. And I still get a beer that finishes 10, 12, to 10.15 without stripping it all out and getting like a 10.02 beer or without, right. uh, 
without having a 1018 to 1030 beer. I've had a 1030 beer before. Tasted really good. Didn't have much alcohol like, in it. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a stout that, that happened with it. Tasted great. Yeah. But it was like, you know, 4% or something. And it started at like 1085. So this one finished at 1010. That's great. I mean... Um, what I would say, I think I told you this at the time, you really need to run that mash again without the glucoamylase mm-hmm. and with the Andia and the... Yeah, and the Ceramix. Ceramix and the... Do you use Termamyl? Yeah, usually. Yeah. You should run it again and see what it attenuates to. Because it's possible right. that, I mean, with as with his much PPG as you got out of that, it's possible that that C10 doesn't act like a traditional caramel. Could be. It's very possible. It's got a great multi-note. I've been using one to two pounds of the C10, especially if I pair that up with the caramel oats I use. It gives a wonderful just light multi-note to something like an IPA or something. You don't get a lot of color out of it, but you do get a little more of that malt character to it. Um, you want to circle back to the to the to the sorghum malt and what yeah. we've done there. So, what have your experiences with that comparing it to, say, either sorghum syrup or other malts you've used, like flavor-wise yeah. or gravity-wise? Flavor-wise, it it's a totally different thing than sorghum syrup is. It's a totally different thing than pale millet or pale rice. I actually, I've done a pretty extensive, although I've never done a single, a single malt sorghum beer yet, but I've done pretty extensive testing, I've told you about some of them, of um, mm-hmm. just single malt beers to really, so, so that I can understand what the flavors are and how to layer the flavors together to get the beer I want. That's actually how right. we created the Vienna Lager is uh, a lot of those malts, I did a single malt and then a beer and then figured out what the flavor uh, that I wanted was and layered them together to get it. So, but what I've, what I've done with the sorghum is I have a couple beers that are my big production beers that I use sorghum syrup in. And I do sorghum syrup in those beers because, not really because of cost, because honestly with, with the mash regime we're using and with Andia and Ceramix, I've got I've got the cost basically on par, whether I'm all grain, you know, as long as it's a 10, mid 10, 40s beer, ingredients cost the same, whether it's sorghum or whether it's, it's rice and millet and buckwheat. That's just, right. that's just where I'm at. So the reason to use sorghum is for the things that I like to use sorghum for. And I like to actually, I'm actually going to, my, my third beer is my, Pilsner. And the the Felix Pilsner? The Felix, yeah. Or Felix? Yeah. And I actually... Did you you say Felix? I said Felix instead of Felix. (laughs) Felix. The Midwest Uh, thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like Uh, saying Oregon. Oh, man. No, no, no. No, no. We didn't say that. I'm from Oregon. So the, the reason I use sorghum is not for cost, but because it, it 
creates the the base that I want in the beer. And so I've got sorghum in in my IPAs. I've got sorghum in my my pilsner, and I've got sorghum as the base malt in my porter, which you know very well about because my mm-hmm. Baker Street porter shares the same original recipe with Roca Creek porter. And that was kind of my brewery's foray into using more millet and rice a few years back was with that recipe. And what I, so what I did with the sorghum malt, first thing I did was I took those recipes that have sorghum syrup in them, specifically Baker Street Porter and Felix Pilsner, and I kept everything else the same. I subbed out with the assumed PPG of the sorghum malt and just replaced and did a mash for the sorghum malt and then added it to the rest of the ingredients and created Felix Pilsner. Did the same mm-hmm. thing, created actually an all-grain recipe of the Baker Street Porter with no sorghum syrup in it and made that. And then compared the two to see if it was the same or if it was different. And what I would say is if I didn't know what Felix Pilsner tasted like or what Baker Street Porter tasted like, right. what I created with those beers would be, I would say, you couldn't tell the difference. But because okay. I know, because I know what the difference is, they, I, I could tell. And, and they created really good beers. And those beers deserved to have their own life, not to just be, now, this is the new Felix Pilsner, this is the Baker Street Porter. Right. So in the Baker Street Porter, where I replaced the sorghum with sorghum syrup with sorghum malt, it created more of a, like an English style rather than more American, like brown porter recipe, which is what the uh, Baker Street Porter is. It was softer. It was a little bit fruitier, which is what I find with the sorghum malt in general, is that there's mm-hmm. more emphasis on fruity flavors. And it was the same with Felix. If you can imagine Felix being even fruitier than it already is as a Bohemian-style Pilsner, it, it was. <laughs> it was fruitier. I did, I actually brewed your recipe, which was Detroit Rock City is what I called it. What did yes. you call that recipe? It was uh, Tasty AF. Tasty AF, yeah. A- <laughs> yeah, and we actually, we came pretty close, and I actually served that, yeah. served that beer. And it was also had a very fruity note. I, my, my favorite right now with the sorghum malt is sorghum malt and some biscuit rice, period, mm-hmm. make a really great Berliner Weiss. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And, and the, so, so a Berliner Weiss is, it's kind of a sour flavor, so similar-ish to a goose. Yeah. I mean, no fruit additions if it's done like bone stock traditionally, but most of the time it's not traditionally brewed anymore. The traditional way to serve it, and Berliner Weiss goes back a long way, and Weiss means wheat, and Berlin stand is where it was originated, was in the city of Berlin. So it was, it's, it's a long-standing style, and actually Napoleon called Berliner Weiss the champagne of Central Europe. And, you know, like, Napoleon would know champagne being from France, right? So traditionally, Berliner Weiss was was sour in some way, whether it was a mixed fermentation. I happen to do mine as a kettle sour just because I, I want to control within my brewery. I, d- I don't want uncontrolled lactobacillus. That's yeah, just it's a bad my thing. <laughs> personal preference. So I did that as a, as a kettle sour and 
it comes out like alcoholic lemonade, actually. Nice. It's really nice. And traditionally, though, it's served unfruited, although now more often you're going to find a fruited version of where the fruit is already in it of a bourbon mm-hmm. rice in the barley world, at least. And the two traditional flavors are raspberry and Waldmeister syrup. And Waldmeister syrup is, is an herb. It's, it's made of sweet woodruff. And okay. it has, kind of turns the beer a little green. And the traditional way to serve it, although it, it's not really done this way anymore in Berlin or in Germany, is to bring out the unfruited in a large goblet, bring out the beer. Actually, interestingly, Michael Jackson the the beer guy not the, the singer. oh okay <laughs> yeah not the singer the beer guy michael jackson <laughs> right he says that it was also served traditionally with a striped straw for whatever reason but you would get the you would get the 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 goblet of beer and then you would either be asked or you would be given a little shot of waldmeister syrup and a little shot of raspberry syrup or himbeer syrup that's raspberry in german and then you would mix it how you wanted to. And we actually are just about, I've got another uh, batch of Berliner Weiss coming out within the next week or so for a tap exclusive here at the brewery. And we have now some raspberry syrup on site and we have on the water, as it were, some German Waldmeister syrup. Uh, so that we'll actually be able to serve that in the traditional way that nobody serves it anymore because nobody serves it traditionally anymore. Any thoughts or advice on sorghum malt specifically? I mill it similarly to how I mill rice, which is to say 0. 0.7, 0.70 millimeters. I can't remember the, the imperial conversion for that. It's, it's on my feeler gauge. So what did you just right. open? This is... Blackbird Stout. Hey, I recognize that one. I love this beer. That's your, like, not your first one, right? No, I've had this before. I'm going to have a Felix Pilsner here. I actually, did right. I tell you about the, about the sour that I made? I actually, uh, Jason Yerger from, from Mutantis actually has been coaching me on some of my souring techniques because I, for a while, was having just a heck of a time with my lactobacillus in the kettle sour eating all my sugar right. and then I'd pitch my yeast uh, I'd you know do the boil add the hops and pitch the yeast after the lacto was done and and the the yeast just hated it just hated it it was like not it was like going to sleep at like you know 10 10 22 and things like that with a Right. Otherwise, should be a really fermentable. I think you told me you had one that was like 1.5%. Yeah. No, no. Okay, so that was my apricot sour. And, and that was the last one that was like really unsuccessful. And it was so mm-hmm. bad. I mean, it, the beer turned out really good because I actually blended it with some other beer. And right. it came out really good. Because, you know, blending is a technique that you can use to make a good beer. And so this particular beer, it sat in primary for like four weeks, okay? Mm-hmm. And at the, end of, at the end of, you know, usually my all-grain beers are done in like six to ten days, 
they're ready. Mm -hmm. They're actually ready to keg down and carbonate after six to 10 days. And so the fact that it went two weeks without being at what I, what I calculated for final gravity was not unusual, but not, not concerning, but unusual. And then for it to go three weeks and not move and then to go four weeks. And at four weeks I was at, one, I was at point zero point nine five percent ABV. <laughs> That's like, isn't that legally non-alcoholic or something? I don't know. And like, it tasted really great. It tasted really great. It was the apricot was there, the sour was there, but there was just no alcohol. Sure. So I... I, I actually repitched, and this is another reason why I, I had to tighten up my kettle souring regime. I had been having to repitch like two times in order to get mm-hmm. the beer. So I repitched again with Creek yeast, you know, the Norwegian stuff. And I finally yes. got up to, I got up to 1.16% alcohol. And it just conked out again. And so yeah. I was looking at it and I had, I was looking at my, at my apricot sour over here and I was looking at this tank of beer over here that was in the exact same stage of being finished. And it was my Felix Pilsner, mm-hmm. which is 4.3% ABV. And I said, you know, if I put some of that beer and some of that beer together, I would have a 3% beer and they're both at the same stage of fermentation. So I could do that without causing problems for either one. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and, and that's how you rescue a brew people. <laughs> that's, and that, that's how you make a beer out of a failure is you blend. You blend early and you blend often. No, you blend late and you blend intentionally. Yes. So... That was apricot sour. I told anybody the story in the tasting room about that beer that wanted to know because that was, uh, I mean, it was, it turned out to be a really great beer and I'll probably never be able to recreate that exact beer because, you know, the sours, the kettle souring process works now with some help from Jason. But that was just, that was just torture. Absolute torture. Wedding's horrible. That's why I yeah. love Kvikes, because, I mean, you can turn a beer in six days if you need to. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've used Creek Yeast a lot. And actually, when I reintroduced my Rendezvous Double IPA, when I first started doing that as a regular beer instead of a seasonal, initially I produced that as uh, a beer with Creek Yeast. But right. it wasn't finishing fast. It was finishing the same amount of time that it takes for like USO5 or, or, you know, the Chico strain to finish. Right. And so I, and what I would say is I've not seen a big difference between the time it takes to get to the final gravity that I want between the two yeasts with a mm-hmm. beer that has good yeast nutrients in it, that has, that has good water salt additions at the beginning so that there's enough magnesium, there's enough other stuff that the yeast needs for good yeast health with good oxygenation. I don't see a big difference 
between those two yeasts in terms of time it takes to finish. Flavor profile, okay. absolutely. <laughs> Let's see. Any major wise thoughts? Brew beer. We need more. Thanks for coming on. This has been JP from Beerly Brewing. He's a dedicated gluten-free brewer out in Oregon. If you're from Michigan, you say Oregon because, you know, we say O's as O's. You say O's as oh. A's? Ah. No, O's and O's. Oregon. They are. <laughs> All right. Well, and we'll this has been Gluten-Free Beer Brian from uh, Michigan. Michigan. All right. Cheers, JP. All right. Prost. Prost.